on air, online, on digital, digital, and the ABC Listen app. The Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Coming up today, a summit to discuss the future of food production. The mission of the Future Food System CRC is essentially to bring together stakeholders from the research partners, industry and government so that we can design a new, smart, resilient, um, sustainable food system. And diversity, the key to one farm on Tasmania's east coast. We're having a bit of a La Nina streak at the moment, but in times of drought where they can last up to five years, it's another important economic thing to have. Obviously, downstocking to almost nothing, it's, it's another revenue thing to keep bills paid and food on the table. Yeah, we'll visit that East Coast farm a little bit later in the program and talk about the future of food production shortly. G'day, Tony, with you on this Monday, where the weather is all over the place, depending on where you are in this state. We'll try and find out what's happening at the halfway stage with the Bureau. Plus, in a moment, the news that TAS Networks will shed around 250 jobs by the end of next year and what that could mean. Plus, the irradiated mangoes that Tasmanian consumers just love. That story coming up later. Along with your thoughts on any issues, 0438 is that text line number, 0438 We'll start the day with news of big job losses and TAS Network says there will be no forced redundancies in the program to shed around 250 staff over the next couple of years. Many of those jobs lost could be in regional and rural areas of the state as TAS Networks looks at getting job numbers down in a bid to save $150 million. Chair of TAS Networks, Roger Gill, has told the State Parliamentary Committee the job losses come as the organisation undergoes a major change. We are doing a lot of maintenance on the system in Tasmania. We spent about, um, you know, in 21, 22, about $226 million back into upgrading and maintaining our system. So system reliability, so prices and reliability are a key element. We've also embarked on a two-year transformation process, uh, again aimed at making sure we're as efficient as possible so that we can, um, again, maintain the best outcomes for Tasmanians at the same time, ensuring that safety and reliability are kept at the forefront of what we do. We think that this transformation program will deliver a a net around $150 million benefit to us over a five-year period. We've got a a, a program that'll take uh, our employees of around about uh, 1,200 now. We'll head down into the, uh, the... mid-900s. That will all be done with voluntary redundancy, natural attrition. Uh, There will be no forced redundancies as part of that. And we're doing this over a long period of time, so there's a lot of consultation within our organisation, a lot of care and attention being made by the board to ensure that this is done in a way which both benefits Tasmanians in the end but at the same time looks after the other staff that we've we've got. And I'll ask the uh, uh, our CEO to give you the exact number oh, thank you. Of, of people who've um, have moved out as we speak. So in, in terms of voluntary redundancies, uh, as of the middle of November, uh, 16 people have left the business. A number of others have been redeployed inside our business to growth areas. Um, so that's uh, the very start of that process. And as the chairman said, it'll be ongoing for between now and December of 2023. Uh, so when did this process 
start because 16 redundancies, you need to make... Uh, that'd be almost 300 redundancies. You've made 16 so far. So can you outline the trajectory of, of when you need to make these almost 300 redundancies by in order to achieve your $150 million worth of savings? So we are working through this layer by layer through our business. Obviously, as a critical service provider, we're very mindful that we have responsibilities to the community. So it's not just a, a question of getting uh, roles redundant um, in a chaotic way. So we're taking a very systematic approach to it with a lot of consultation to the individuals involved. We don't make people redundant. We make roles redundant. And then we figure out how we're going to accommodate the wishes of the people. That takes some time. But between now and December 2023, we will see uh, that, that role reduction taking place. There are some substantial numbers of vacancies that we've held as well and are assessing. So over 121 vacancies currently exist in TAS networks. Um, we will not be needing all of those vacancies filled. Um, about 121 currently. Um, about 58 of them um, we can uh, agree or we're in the process of agreeing that we will eliminate the vacancies and then it comes down to uh, looking at people uh, at vacancies that we do need to fill uh, so we're always going to be recruiting key skills like line workers cyber security that's still a necessity but some of those 121 vacancies in fact almost half we're going to in the coming months decide to close off. The uh, CEO just talked about not making uh, people redundant but positions redundant. Can you talk through the process for an employee whose role has been made redundant but does not want to leave the business? Can you talk through the process of how that happens? So it, it starts of course by a consideration of the, uh, the function of the particular role and what we would need to carry going forward. If uh, a role is determined to be redundant, uh, we sit down with the individual concerned and we would talk through the options. Some people uh, do desire to stay within the business and be redeployed, so we look at their skill sets, we try and match it with the skills that we need. Uh, we can provide training to such individuals who wish to stay in the business. Some people decide they wish to leave the business and uh, if, if they're doing so, uh, they will do so on a voluntary basis. They will get a redundancy package that they're entitled to. We also will facilitate them in terms of uh, uh, accessing the market. We're very fortunate that there's a buoyant market for the sort of skills, excellent skills that people in Tans Networks have. And several of those people that I mentioned who've already left the business have been fortunate to pick up roles in the industry as well. So it's a consultation process involving the individual, their desires, what they wish to do, whether primarily whether to stay within the business or leave the business and go further in the industry or in, indeed into a different industry. So we have providers who come and advise us and advise the individuals concerned and give them counselling. Uh, we provide financial advice as well so they can understand the implications of their decision and we work uh, through that process which as you have noted does take some time but it, it is important that this is done correctly.
and we ensure that their salary, the current salary, is maintained um, for a period of 12 months. In many instances, the salaries are very similar. That's just the nature. We've a banded salary structure in our, in our business. So most people we can accommodate and they will not see any change in their financial circumstances in terms of uh, terms and conditions. Uh, so we were, what we're seeking to do here is have a happy landing for those individuals because, uh, as I've mentioned before, they're first-class individuals. They've been very loyal to the company. They've given many years service in most instances, and we're keen to uh, retain that information and skill set in the in the in the in the business. But it's about us being fit for purpose. So, some roles that uh, individuals have been discharging, uh, you know, very well for many years are not required any longer because our industry is changing and transforming at an enormous pace. CEO of TAS Network, Sean McGoldrick, on the plans to shed around 250 jobs at the organisation by the end of next year. He was speaking to a state parliament committee hearing into government business enterprises and we also heard from the chair of TAS Network's, Roger Gill. The court has handed down the largest fine in Australian history on a labour hire firm for breaching licensing rules. Supreme Court of Victoria issued fines of more than 386000 to Ung Services, $96,000 to Director Nico Keat after the firm's licence to operate was cancelled for trying to circumvent labour laws. Victorian Labour Hire Commissioner Steve Dargaville has more. The labour hire business tried to avoid the labour hire licensing scheme. The scheme is there to protect vulnerable workers. The director uh, tried to avoid the scheme, was found out, and the court uh, awarded a penalty of $483,000, elements to go against the company, but also to the director personally for his attempt to uh, circumvent the licensing scheme. How did the the company and the director try and circumvent the the scheme itself? The director applied for a labour hire licence. He wasn't a fit and proper person. Um, He had a number of serious convictions. Uh, He was refused a licence. Another gentleman applied for a licence, obtained a licence, and then the first gentleman popped himself uh, on as the sole director of the second business. So it was an attempt to circumvent the checks that are there to protect vulnerable workers. The authority took the view that that kind of attempt to avoid uh, protection of workers was uh, not right, and we took the matter to court. and The judge awarded significant penalties for uh, the avoid the attempted avoidance of the licensing scheme. Do you know what type of, of produce or work that this particular company was engaged in in either harvesting or, or working in? Uh, the business was supplying work, uh, workers or seeking to supply workers in the Arrow Valley and um, is no longer operating. Over $386,000 of fines to the company, $96,000 in fines to the individual. What does that judgment say about the, the strengthening of, of laws to, to licence labour hire in the state? What the judgment says to business is that if you're trying to circumvent the rules and trying to get around the rules and uh, do the wrong thing, you will be found out and you'll pay a very heavy uh, price, not just for your business, but for you personally. And that uh, the consequence of trying to dodge the law at the expense of vulnerable workers will cost you dearly. This is the biggest fine for for this kind of offence in the in the history of Victoria. Is that right? 
It's the biggest fine for this type of offence in the history of Australia. And so I think we can take from that that, um, you know, the authority takes a very dim view of businesses and people who are trying to avoid the scheme that's there to protect vulnerable workers. Of course, people trying to do the right thing can be reassured that um, if they're being undercut by people trying to dodge the scheme, uh, there to protect vulnerable workers, that uh, there are very significant penalties that can be applied and will be applied. And I suppose as a result of a judgment like this, what is your advice to to farmers and other businesses that use labour hire companies uh, that are operating in the state? Well, uh, the advice is remains the same, which is please make sure you're using licensed labour hire providers and make sure that everyone in the supply chain is licensed. So if you've got a subby or a, a subby of a subby on your site and you're not quite sure, um, try, and, try and find out because... Um, it is your obligation to make sure that you're dealing with businesses that are, are operating in accordance with the law. And that's to make sure we've got a level playing field, make sure that the work, workforce is being treated properly and we've got a sustainable industry. Is this a one-off type of judgment or are there other or similar cases that are currently being brought before the courts? Are there other there are other cases that are in the process of being brought before the courts and uh, we, we would strongly prefer uh, that people like this gentleman did not try and circumvent the law and, and that there wasn't a need for prosecution. But of course, um, there is a need and we have a number of cases to bring before the courts in the next little while. And we're heading into another busy harvest time in Victoria, albeit somewhat delayed due to the uh, wet weather and, and flooding that is continuing in parts of the state. But are you expecting a, another a busy period or a busy time for your office over this summer period? It'll be a busy time. It's a busy time for everyone in the uh, industry, and uh, it's a it's an important time. Of course, um, we provide lots of resources for uh, the industry to access, so that it, they can find their compliance quite easily. And it's quite easy to uh, establish if you just go to labourhireauthority.vic.gov.au. You can see who's uh, licensed. And if you've got any one in your supply chain that you can't find on the register, then you should be asking yourself some questions. But yes, it'll be a busy time for um, the entire industry and certainly for the regulator. It's Victorian Labour Hire Commissioner Steve Dargaville speaking there to Warwick Long after the Supreme Court handed down the largest fine in Australian history on a labour hire firm for breaching licensing rules. Coming up on the Country Hour, the future of food production discussed at a seminar and potatoes back on the supermarket shelves. With ABC Listen, explore a whole new world of podcasts and live radio, like unpicking fast fashion in Veronica Milsom's podcast, Threads. The marketing tricks being used on us right now. Or learning to spend less and live better with Nazim Hussain's Pineapple Project. Do we all really need it? And if we do, how do we get it for cheap? The ABC Listen app. A whole new world of live radio and on-demand audio entertainment. Download it now from your app store. It's the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. And remember, you can stay in touch via the text line 0438922936, that number... Robotics, glasshouses, polytunnels, sustainability, waste and energy costs. 
all at the Future of Food Summit, which was held in Brisbane, to explore potential solutions to the key challenges facing Australia's food and agribusiness sectors. Jennifer Nichols spoke to Professor Cordelia Selamalia, a Director of Future Food Systems Cooperative Research Centre, and asked her about the aim of gathering some of the brightest minds in the country to the summit. The mission of the Future Food System CRC is essentially to bring together stakeholders from the research partners, industry and government so that we can design a new, smart, resilient, um, sustainable food system, especially dealing with all the challenges that we have today and also in the future. So it is important to bring all these people together because we can showcase some of the projects that we currently have, but also show the strength and also the need for partnership between all these different stakeholders. Talk me through some of those challenges. Climate change, a very big one. So we have seen, for example, a lot of the impact that we have with our food prices, with just the weather events that we currently have. Um, in Australia. And, and climate change is, of course, uh, is going to be very disruptive even now. And that means that we have to be more resilient with regard to our food supply and how we grow food. One of our team in the Future Food System CRC is looking at protected cropping. So looking at developing smart technology that are suited for the Australian climates uh, that we can use to perhaps uh, secure our food supply with regard to all the changes that happen with the climate. That would be challenging in itself because the electricity costs of that, the other challenges that protected cropping bring Mm -hmm. with pests and diseases that love that warm, humid climate inside the greenhouse. Yes, and this is the reason why uh, we are bringing uh, even scientists that come from different backgrounds, not just the plant scientists, but we're bringing uh, engineering, we're bringing computer scientists and uh, visual uh, people who work in visual imaging. Because, for example, one of the research projects that we are currently supporting, looking at how we can develop uh, visual imaging with machine learning to identify the... Uh, pests and and also some of the potential disruptor to this indoor cropping uh, environment. Uh, We also work with a project uh, that look at sensors that can be put into glass houses to monitor the humidity, the temperature, so that it can run much more uh, efficiently without having to have people being there all the time. And of course, automated cropping uh, with uh, robotic solution and, and also other things that we can do. Uh, with regard to energy, one of the projects that we are working on looking at implementing smart glass or smart film. So essentially, it's a passive uh, solution with regard to controlling the light environment without uh, additional energy, but to maximize that so that we can um, have a much better growing environment for the crop inside the glass houses. So if you are painting a picture of what this future world looks like, how does it gel in your mind? I guess it will be quite different from what we have now. Um, and, 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 and the reason why I say that is because we have seen that um, obviously uh, the popularity of all these different sources of protein that are currently um, uh, becoming much more popular. And uh, insects, for example. That's right. And, and insect, plant protein, and also other sources, uh, algae and, and so on. Um, and I think that is exciting because it will give us even more complementary protein sources, um, not just the traditional animal protein. And also from the Australian perspective, 
we have so much opportunity to develop more of our product into much added value product. So the talk that we just heard um, just now talking about how we can add value to some of the traditional um, plant and, and uh, sources of protein that we have in Australia so that we can turn it into uh, added value product that also can go for export. So that will be something that we would like to see and support through the CRC. So in the future, instead of looking at a plate with meat and three veg, the Australian staple, we'd be looking at an algae protein with some plant protein. It's hard to envisage. Uh, yes, uh, and, and, and it could be also a different source of legumes uh, because, again, um, this is a very good source of protein, uh, have low uh, allergenicity compa in comparison to some other uh, perhaps more traditional source of plant protein. And I think giving people choices and giving people more um, diverse uh, option will be great for the environment, but also for people's diet and, and nutrition and health as well. What about the cost? Are we just realistically going to be paying a lot more for food in the future? And if so, how much more do you think? Um, so so uh, yeah, uh, the, uh, this is something that also, uh, of course, part of our uh, research and development is to try to find ways to treat some of this protein in a way that is uh, scalable, less invasive and also lower cost. Because at the end of the day, if we want to take something to market and uh, something to commercialization, it has to make sense uh, in terms of the price and the cost. So we want to minimize our impact to the environment. We want to also minimize the uh, impact in terms of generating waste. And what other sorts of applications are you envisaging for plant proteins? A very popular now is, of course, all this uh, alternative meat or plant-based meat. Uh, and plant-based uh, product that are traditionally using animal protein, but now they want to replace it with this plant protein. Uh, there are still some challenges, um, especially with the, the taste and the texture. And the other thing is also that um, we would like to make sure that, for example, if you are creating a plant-based product that is mimicking the animal protein, for example, uh, we don't end up adding too much additional ingredient that might not be entirely good oh, for you. I saw, yeah. I was looking on the labels at the shop the other day, the increased fat content, salt content. Yes, and, and I think that's something that's still a challenge at the moment. How do you formulate this product so that they will have this, the same taste and texture as their animal counterpart, but without compromising the nutritional quality? And, and this is a challenge in terms of formulation, but also processing as well. That's Professor Cordelia Selamalia, the Research and Commercialisation Director of Future Food Systems Cooperative Research Centre, talking there to Jennifer Nichols at a summit in Brisbane. One of the big potato growers in Tasmania's south is back on the paddocks and running the processing factory for the first time in about eight weeks. Rain and wet paddocks have stopped daily potatoes from planting, harvest and packing. It's led to empty shells at some supermarkets. Ruby Daly says up to 20 tonnes will be packed today, ready to start filling orders. Today is a really, really exciting day for us. We have um, started our new season potatoes, so first day of harvest. So you're back on track because you've had a few problems with rain and getting on paddocks? Yeah, look, we're not completely in full supply yet, but you will start to see um, new potatoes on shelf this week. So, look, don't go and panic buy, but you'll certainly see potatoes starting to come back onto shelf. So you're back on the paddocks or some yes, of them? we are. Yep, back on paddocks. It's still very wet conditions, but we're able to harvest. Wet again today, obviously, as well. 
It is, but nothing can damper this day today. All the paddocks around the sort of southeast a little bit better in terms of getting tractors on them? Yeah, absolutely. Look, we're really lucky. It's dried out fairly quickly this time of the year. So, you know, there's been a fair bit of wind, which helps drying the like the paddocks out. But, you know, they're still very wet, but we're able to still move. Have you had to adapt any of the harvesters or, or do anything different? Yeah, we've actually had to bring most of our old gear out, some of the old faithful gear, um, you know, smaller harvesters and, and just take it easy and not go as big really quickly. So going back to the old um, roots, I guess. So not going as fast as you might like by the sounds of it as well. Yeah, and still capping our numbers of supply. This time of the year, we would normally not have any cap on any numbers that we're sending out the door, but we are certainly very cautious that we're one of the only growers in Tasmania that currently has new season. There might be a little bit around here and there, but, um, you know, it's very, very short supply still. So we're very cautious of making sure everyone gets a little bit of something. What does that do for prices in the, in the market out there? for consumers? Look, I think it'll stay fairly steady, but, um, you know, people need to understand that weather has really affected our farming business. You know, we we needed to get a little bit of a price rise this year, otherwise we wouldn't be around for the future. Um, so, you know, we're, we're just asking for a little bit of an increase just to try and help us keep going into the future. So you might notice, say, what, a dollar up a kilo or something like that? Yeah, we, you might see maybe they might be a dollar fifty more than, but that's that's because they're new season potatoes. Once we get into our surplus supply, we hope that the price will come back down to normal. Um, but because they're you know they're new season, they're really fresh, they're perfect looking potatoes. I think people should pay the price for them. Are they Nicola or? What's out there? Look, we've got our pink eyes out um, this week. We'll have some whitewash. So we've got, you know, Nicola's. We've got a new variety that we're introducing into Tassie, which is a daisy, which is a really beautiful cooking all-rounder potato. So, yeah, I think anyone's happy to get anything at the moment. What do you think consumers will be paying per kilo? Look, I don't know because I don't set the retail price. That's completely up to the retailers. So, honestly, I, I wouldn't know. They're probably around $7.00. Um, for a two kilo, but yeah, again, I'm not really sure. Sorry. So we'll start seeing them in some of the independent supermarkets as well as some of the bigger ones. Yeah, look, we're we're fair. We we definitely are supplying to absolutely everyone we can. We um, supply to the major supermarkets, but we certainly look after our little um, independents as well. And when do you think? I mean, I suppose it's how long is a piece of string, but when will you be back in in sort of full production? Oh, yeah, look, we try not to put that out in the universe too much. But look, we're hoping to be back on track. Maybe Feb, March, we'll be back to normal supply. Uh, We've still got a little bit of a supply gap after this first crop because of that um, wet season. We weren't able to get back onto paddock to plant. So once we get through this crop, it's a little bit hairy for a little bit. But then, you know, come March, we'll be back in full supply, fingers crossed. How many have you got going through the factory today? Um, I reckon we're probably going to pack out, you know, 10 to 20 tonne today, which is massive. Like for us, we haven't seen that number for, you know, eight weeks. This Our production chair has been almost closed for eight weeks. So, you know, to pack out 10 to 20 tonne today 
is um, everyone's got a spring in their step. Yeah, good day to the potato packers, packing potatoes at Daily Potatoes, Ruby Daily. They're talking to Fiona Breen about what they've done to get the back on the paddocks to harvest the spuds so we can eat some. Uh, coming up, we'll visit a very diverse East Coast farm, plus a unique way of getting bugs off the strawberries and a check on the weather as well. First up, the news headlines with Will Murray. G'day, Tony. Researchers at the Tasmanian Museum and Art Gallery have found the remains of the last thylacine hidden in cupboards. The last thylacine, a female, died at the Hobart Zoo on September the 7th, 1936, and researchers have long assumed its skin and skeleton had gone missing. But it's been revealed it was sitting in storage in the museum's education office. The last thylacine skin was also taken around the country as a travelling exhibit, with museum staff unaware. And police are asking for witnesses to an alleged hit-and-run incident in East Devonport yesterday. Around 11am, a a white Holden ute turning onto Triton Road allegedly struck a 28-year-old pedestrian who had to be taken to hospital. Two men were arrested a short time later, and police are calling for any CCTV or dashcam footage of the incident. And a tsunami warning for American Samoa has been lifted after a powerful earthquake struck near Tonga. The magnitude 6.7 tremor happened under the ocean at a depth of 36 kilometres. The Pacific Tsunami Warning Centre says there's now no further tsunami threat. And Michael Della Fontana will have more at one, Tony. Thanks, Will. Time now to check the latest on the weather. Brooke Oakley joins us from the Bureau. Good day, Brooke. Good afternoon, Tony. Well, you've had a nice mix of weather for Tasmania today. What's going on? We definitely have. We've got windy and wet conditions today due to a moist east, sorry, south to southeasterly airstream wrapping around a low pressure system near Tasmania. So in the 24 hours to 9am this morning, the highest rainfall total was 24 millimetres at Mount Wellington. And some of the slopes of Mount Wellington had the next highest totals with Leslie Vale receiving 23 millimetres and Fern Tree 21 millimetres. Since 9am this morning, most of the rain has been about the southeast as well, with Mount Wellington at the top again with 10 millimetres and Tea Tree 5 millimetres. Hobart has received 3 millimetres of rain since 9am this morning. We are expecting the rain to continue about the south and the east today, with the highest totals about elevated areas, and then it will ease in the evening. There are showers elsewhere, although they're less likely about the west of the state. And we have seen some thunderstorms about the northeast. These are expected to continue for much of the afternoon, but clear by the evening. The other story is that it is getting very windy, particularly about northern and eastern parts of Tasmania. And we do have a severe weather warning current for damaging winds. The strongest winds are likely to be between around 1 and 8pm today and then also easing through the evening. The easing trend does continue tomorrow. There will still be some light onshore showers about the south and the east, but it will be otherwise fine. And then we start to see wintry conditions returning late Wednesday and during Thursday. There's a cold front to cross the state on Wednesday evening. So we'll see showers developing about the west during the morning and then extending statewide during the afternoon and evening. Some possible thunderstorms about the northeast in the evening and the snow lowering to around 700 metres with possible small hail about the west and far south. And we'll see west to southwesterly winds shifting fresh and gusty southwesterly in the evening. 
This cold weather continues on Thursday, where we'll see showers about western, southern and central areas with possible small hail, and snowfalls to around 700 metres, rising to 900 metres in the afternoon. It will remain mainly fine for the north coast, though, and there'll be the chance of showers elsewhere. And the minimum temperature temperatures will be well... Sorry, the maximum temperatures will be well below average for this time of year. But settled conditions do return on Friday and Saturday. However, a heads up that more wind and rain are expected from Sunday onwards due to yet another low-pressure system. Gee whiz, if this keeps up, we shall have a white Christmas. (laughs) (laughs) I do hope not. Oh dear, why not? It'll feel like Christmas then, won't it? With snow around and and Santa. Anyway, uh, warnings, what have we got? Well, for today, we do have that severe weather warning for damaging winds for parts of northern and eastern Tasmania. Also, a gale warning for western coastal waters from Low Rocky Point to Stanley and for eastern coastal waters from the northern tip of Flinders Island to Wineglass Bay, including Bank Strait and Franklin Sound. A strong wind warning for all remaining coastal waters, including the southeast inshore waters and the central plateau lakes. And then tomorrow, a gale warning for east of Flinders Island and a strong wind warning for remaining northern and eastern coastal waters from Stanley to Tasman Island. Okay, and in the northeast, how long will those very uh, dangerous winds last? So the, the strongest winds today, they will be about the Tamar Valley through until around 6pm and continuing a little bit longer about the northeast of the state through until around 9pm there. And then in the late evening, we expect that severe weather warning to be cancelled completely. And Brooke, the coastal waters in swell. What's happening? For today, we've got south to southeasterly winds at 20 to 30 knots, reaching up to 35 knots about the northwest, and also increasing to 30 to 40 knots about the northeast during the afternoon and evening. The swells in the west and south are southwesterly of 2 to 3 metres, decaying to 1 to 2 metres in the evening, and also a southeasterly of 1 to 2 metres. And the wave rider buoy at Cape Sorrel is currently reading 3.4 metres. In the north, it's confused to around one metre. And in the east, south to southeasterly of one to two metres, building to two to four metres during the evening. And also a southwesterly one to two metres offshore in the south. And the wave rider buoy at Marar Island is currently reading 3.2 metres. And that has increased by about a metre and a half in the last hour or so. For tomorrow, there'll be south to southeasterly winds at 20 to 30 knots about the east, reaching up to 35 knots about the northeast in the early morning. Southeasterly winds at 15 to 25 knots elsewhere, decreasing to 10 to 15 knots about the south in the middle of the day and becoming variable to 15 knots about the north. The swells in the west and south are southwesterly of 1 to 2 metres and an east to southeasterly of 1 to 2 metres, building to 2 to 3 metres about the southeast. In the north, confused around 1 metre, and in the east, a southeasterly of 2 to 4 metres and a southwesterly of 1 to 2 metres offshore in the south. Terrific, Brooke. Thank you for all that. Thank you. Brooke Oakley with the latest information for you on that uh, forecast. Coast to Coast, this is the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. 
Uh, Greg from the Highland Lakes area says, uh, G'day, Tony. Taz Network's making workers redundant. This is the mob who owns Marinus Project, where we're forever being told there'll be jobs, jobs, jobs. Seems doubtful to me. Thanks for that, Greg. 0438922936. When you're working at a smaller farm, often diversity is the key to sustainability. Astrid Walters at Burma Creek on the East Coast runs sheep, cattle, and the family has vineyards, and a new cellar door is proving popular as well. Fiona Breen popped in to have a chat with a young farmer. We're on the central side of the East Coast, and at the moment uh, we look directly out to Shooton Island, uh, which is part of the Great Oyster Bay region. And what a beautiful spot for a cellar door, Boomer Creek cellar door. Are you happy with how all this is going? Yeah, we are very happy with how this is going. Um, People are generally starting to open up in the tourism scene, so it's nice to see people getting about after um, COVID and things sort of going back to uh, somewhat normality, um, which is nice to see, so... Did you open during COVID? We did indeed, so we opened... um, right as the first lockdown stopped on the long weekend in June 2020. So, yeah, we really didn't know what to expect, but our local support's been fantastic and we can't thank them enough for that. How important is the vineyard and also this cellar door to your farm business? Uh, I'd say very important. I mean, obviously we're having a bit of a La Nina streak at the moment, but in times of drought where they can last up to five years, um, it's another important economic thing to have obviously down stocking to almost nothing it's it's another revenue thing to keep bills paid and food on the table because you're a smaller property what sort of uh hectare size are we talking about yeah so we are pretty small it's 400 hectares so we've had to look at uh, a range of things that make it economically viable uh, for the family Um, so yeah having different things happening around the farm has helped So what have we got here on the property? So aside the cellar door and the vineyard, we also have a olive grove, which we press our own virgin olive oil. Uh, We also have beef cattle and super fine merino sheep. And what are the numbers on the sheep? Uh, At the moment, we're running a small flock of around 600 sheep. That is mainly for wool. What sort of wool are we talking about? Uh, So we're talking about that... uh, that super fine micron wool um, that goes into your high-end branches, so things like your your suits and and products like that. And how's that job going at the moment? Yeah, good. You can't complain at the moment. It's so green here. I think every animal on the place is pretty fat and happy. <laughs> and the wool's coming off well? Uh, it has been, yeah. Uh, we were a little concerned given the amount of rain, but yeah, no tender wool. Um, there hasn't been very minimal staining in regards to that, that wetness um, and still coming off nice and clean. And tell me, you're, you're running the property with your parents still? Uh, yes, we are at the moment. <laughs> so how does, it, how does it all work? Fun and games, as it is with family. Um, you know, we're not always going to agree, but you've, I suppose, got to work within your scope and try and just embrace it the best you can. What's your forte? You like to sort of be across everything? Um, I do. Uh, so with a background in veterinary nursing as well as viticulture, I do like to have a bit of a, a scope on, on all the areas of our farm. And the beef is a good part of the business, a smaller part, but a good part? It has been. Obviously, that um, beef market at the moment has been holding pretty strong. Um, so there is a demand, uh, not just obviously for beef, but for breeding stock as well. Well, tell me about the vineyard. What sort of grapes, what the season's been like so far? Have there been any uh, problems along the way or good things happening? 
Um, good things, problems. I suppose the good is the amount of grass growth at the moment. So, you know, and, and, the, and just the water in general, we're not having to worry about keeping water up to stock, uh, up to crops, our vines. Um, on a downside, dealing with the water is another problem. And obviously the hail that's been here recently um, uh, was a little bit of a blow, but everything seems to be coming back and doing a 360. What ha- tell me about what happened that day and, and what the implications were. Uh, So on top of a day before with gale force winds, with them already being slightly stressed, we received uh, marble-sized hail. Um, Our paddocks were white. Uh, It looked like it had just put down a good few inches of snow. Uh, So there was a lot of bruising, battered leaf. We were a bit concerned some of the growth might have not come back, but uh, fingers crossed, I think it's been early enough that they seem to be growing back from that. It's not at that fruit stage yet? For the older vineyard, no, they seem to be okay. Uh, the younger vineyard we've got out the front, I think uh, we're just going to be looking at getting them to grow and be happy this year, not so much pushing to fruit. So what are you hoping for next? I mean, obviously some dry weather. Can you take any more rain? I mean, it seems funny to say that on the East Coast, which is renowned for drought. Yeah, you know what, uh, being a farmer and being in that drought uh, situation, I'm always reluctant to say we've had enough. Um, I still think we're lucky around here that we can handle the rain Um, but yeah it certainly would be lovely to have some sunny days. (laughs) Talking about drought in those tough years when you did destock here at the property have you looked at ways to to mitigate if that happens again? Yeah so there's a lot of training going into that at the moment um, whether that's doing different programs working with government bodies uh, and speakers uh, just so you can prepare yourself not just mentally, but um, from a business sense of, you know, that is going to happen again. So we need to just think about things differently. Practically, uh, what are you doing to be ready for drought? Uh, So we have gone into a planning phase, which has been approved to set up a secondary dam that will uh, run on an original system, uh, river system that we can open up into our dam now. So that just better supports us in drought for a better backup supply of water. Well, Astrid, you must have one of the most beautiful spots for a farm in Tasmania, if not Australia. What's it like as a young woman working on the property? Today, great. I receive support from everyone basically I don't feel like I am downgraded or put in a corner as a woman I feel I'm getting just as much opportunity as everyone um, from all scopes so yeah it's enlightening really. And you're enjoying this as a career? Yes yep Um, being in the outdoors uh, certainly being inside office paperwork it's definitely not my thing so being able to be outdoors and do what I I love hands-on is great. That's Astrid Wilders chatting there to Fiona Breen of the Boomer Creek Vineyard, which is at Little Swanport on Tasmania's east coast. Well, farmer Brendan Hoyle has found a way to smash destructive bugs and keep his delicious strawberries organic, and he's glad it sucks. The Australian Organic 2022 Farmer of the Year uses an industrial-sized bug vacuum towed behind a tractor and predator insects to control Queensland fruit flies without spraying pesticides on the crop. Jennifer Nichols visited the farm in the Glasshouse Mountains to find out more. I started off on a journey in organic cattle when I first arrived in Australia and a couple of years later we ended up on a strawberry farm and they'd already been in it a year and so we sort of took over and started learning you know the tricks of the trade and what needed to be done and since then we've constantly grown each year and 
we learn each year and we try and become better. So it's been a fantastic journey. Well, that would have been really interesting if you had that passion for organics already and then you came into an industry where quite a few chemicals are used. What proportion of your strawberries would be organic now? Uh, we're probably growing about 10%. It's all market-driven. You know, strawberries are probably one of the hardest crops to grow organically. So, you know, there's a lot of time and effort to understanding the challenges and then trying to find ways to overcome them. Yeah, you're really paving a new way, I guess. I think that's what it's about, you know, and that's what we try and do each year is just try and find new ways. That's how we've ended up where we are. With this beast in front of us <laughs> that you pulled out of the shed because to let everybody know, we're at the beautiful Glasshouse Mountains on this farm where currently the strawberry season is well and truly over for the year and you've got your cover crop in to put some nitrogen back into the soil. But what is this? It's got three big drums and radiator over there. Yeah, so this is our bug vacuum. The challenge was as the spring sets in, you know, we see a lot more pest activity in the organics without anything to control that. It was the end of the season for us because they taint the fruit and then it's not saleable, it's not good quality. So um, this extends our season because if we can get over the top and get rid of the numbers down to the threshold, then we can continue through to what we deem the end of the season. We've used it two years now in a row with much success. So it's a design we had a look at in America a couple of years ago. It's just a three-drum bug vacuum. It's an awesome bit of gear. So, uh, yeah, we're, we're very proud. What a great idea, but how does it work without sucking the strawberry plants and damaging them? Yeah, so it sits just above probably 100 mil off the strawberry plants. There's a lot of suction force there because you've got to try and pull the bugs from off the leaves and in under the leaves on the, on the plastic. So we've got to get a bit of force there and it pulls them through and basically we get rid of the bugs that way. So, yeah, it's been great. It's been a great innovative piece of machinery that we've been lucky enough to have the skills to build and, you know, now we can use it. Did you copy it off a design that you found overseas? Yeah, so we first saw it in the States, as I said, and, yep. and the Californian Polytechnic University have got plans for this machine, which um, they've obviously published and we grabbed it then and, and oh, used they allowed you free access to the plans? Yeah, we got the plans from them. And, um, yeah, we just used the skills that we had and the people that we know in hydraulics, and they helped us put it together. Oh, that's fantastic. Well, show me around this side. So big fans there, obviously lots of protective gear to make sure that no hands get sucked in. Yeah, that's right. Um, it's pretty noisy bit of gear. The fans suck the bugs off the bushes. There's um, a perforated grill over the top, and as the bugs come through that, they hit the grill and that's what kills them. And so as we suck, fruit fly and rutherigan bug are probably the two major pests that we're, we're targeting with this machine and it works very effectively. So look, we've got to get over, you know, every couple of days, but it solves the problem. What sort of reduction in insect numbers have you had with it? Oh, look, I think, you know, walking through afterwards, oh, you'd be hitting 75 to 90% of them. Wow, 75 to 90% reduction. Absolutely. Um, look, they do come back within a few days because obviously there's a bit of a cycle that you've got to stay on top of. We find that you've got to get in early before any population, you know, sets itself up in the crop. And if you can stay on top of it, you, you're far better off. Any downsides to that? I suppose you have perhaps some increased soil compaction if you're having to drive the tractor over it more often. Look, I think that's probably one of the things. It's just, you know, we're obviously using a tractor with somebody driving it and then the diesel consumption there too. But, you know, it sort of outweighs the, the need for that organic season, you know, to, to draw out till the end. And this is just one of the methods that you use because you're also dropping predatory bugs into the fields as well from drones? 
Yep, that's right. We use hand and drone. So we're probably using eight different species of predators now. So, you know, as we see thresholds of thrips, um, this year we had, you know, major problems with aphids. And so, you know, we brought in predators to take care of that issue. And there is a bit of a lag, you know, you've got to get in there early and you've got to understand what you're looking for and when the right time is to release. But it's the only way we can control this inorganic. So, you know, you've really got to become a master at using predators to overcome the issues. And is there enough of a premium on the supermarket shelves and in the grocery stores to actually warrant all its extra cost? I think there is. You know, it's a niche market. It's not gigantic. You know, we do what we can and we produce the best quality. So, you know, along the way we do lose a lot of product because it doesn't meet our specs. I would say that the bigger challenges are probably more weather-related than the price. The demand is there, but just overcoming weather, rain events, pests and disease, you know, that's really what knocks you around. So it's been a heck of a year. Oh, it seems like every year is a bit of a heck of a year. We just, you know, you face the challenges that get presented and do your best. You're also measuring soil moisture and electrical conductivity and temperature with cloud-based monitoring probes. It's not a new technology, um, just becoming a little bit more scientific with measuring our soil and, and moisture and looking at the plants and, and understanding their growth and their needs. And so, you know, we're able to put in cloud-based monitoring equipment that gives us up-to-date actuals so we can adjust the growing of, of the crop, you know, water requirements and fertiliser and nutrition. It's also about the environment and making sure that we're doing what we can without any surplus. You know, the cost is obviously a waste, but just really fine-tuning everything that we do in there just to get the best and become the most efficient. So that's the name of the game, is really just honing down on everything that we do in there and using the technology that's available. Organic strawberry farmer Brendan Hoyle talking to Jennifer Nichols about his unique way of getting rid of the bugs using a big vacuum cleaner. Mm. Alistair says on the text line, uh, Tony, what about snail protein, which is excellent for humans, very low in fats, high in mineral and essential amino acids. Yeah, thanks for that, Alistair. I was a little bit slow in picking up that one. Um, And Jamie says, new season pink eyes were $4.95 a kilo. Uh, Thanks, Jamie. And Maggie says, Tony, a glass half full potato grower. Go, girl. And another one from John says, thanks, Tony. Some of us like cool, temperate weather. Yeah. Well, as I said, you could get a white Christmas the way the way things are going with the weather. Very strange weather we're having all year. Well, a North Queensland mango grower says Tasmanian consumers have embraced mangoes that are irradiated before they come into the state. Irradiation treatment of fruit makes the produce less attractive to pests like fruit fly, which have caused major problems for some Tasmanian fruit growers in the past. Lucy Cooper headed along to Ben Martin's busy mango packing shed in Bowen in North Queensland to find out why mangoes are thriving this season and also his reaction to Tasmanian consumers. We've had really good growing conditions. Um, there has been some challenges there with different pests and diseases um, that a number of growers are, are seeing. Um, but realistically, on a, on a whole, um, yeah, it's been good growing conditions and Mother Nature's been pretty fond of us. There's no doubt there's been a bit of wet around. The soil is well and truly boggy. What's that meant for your mangoes? Um, it just means we've got to yeah, get moving pretty quick. So. What the rain does, it'll actually bring the fruit on quicker. Um, so they'll ripen a lot faster, so we've got to put our foot down and, and get the crop off. Um, so at the moment, we're probably doing around 8,000 trays a day. Um, and yeah, we, we've got to get going. If we're going to talk about pests and diseases, could we talk about something that visually we can see on quite a lot of the mangoes at the moment? 
Yeah, so pestle disease, you always have different challenges and different pressures um, change throughout your season. Um, so at the moment we're um, battling on one block a, a little plant hopper, a little flathead, and um, you need to get in and try and keep your sprays up to it and keep your tree architecture open. Um, so there's always challenges and different um, issues on different blocks, whether it's a nutrition or whether it's you know, tree architecture or all these little little pests and diseases. But that's the beauty of the grading technology that we've got here. It grades all that out. So if there is any issues in there, it'll downgrade it to a different pack or to processing. Um, so your consumers, even though there might be a couple little marks on the mango, it's still beautiful to eat. We haven't necessarily seen this issue uh, on our shelves a lot previously. Was there not a spray to deal with this? Look, the, the industry has got some really good chemistry coming through at the moment, but we've lost some of our good old conventional sprays, which would have um, combated some of these diseases that growers are facing at the moment. Um, so that's why it's important for industry and the chemical companies to work together to ensure that we've got new chemicals coming through that are going to help growers with these pests and diseases into the future. Was that taken off for health and safety reasons or was it just taken off the market? Uh, we, we lost a, a chemical that most growers used to use a couple of years ago and, and I think that was just due to market pressures and the, the cost of manufacturing and the challenges around it. Um, so there has been some newer chemicals come on board um, over the last sort of 12, 18 months. Um, but yeah, there's you know, it's just another challenge and another, I suppose, um, obstacle that growers have to face with different disease pressures and different environments. Here in North Queensland, it really is the gateway to pests and disease for the rest of, the, of Australia. Could you tell me about, you know, uh, consumer preferences in southern states in terms of what they're willing to consume, especially from that looks and from that treatment side of things? Yeah, look, there's um, been some really good success down in Tasmania at the moment with um, consumer acceptance with irradiated mangoes. So, um, currently in Australia we irradiate mangoes as a market access um, protocol and treatment um, for mango seed weevil and fruit fly um, which are two important pests that we want to keep out of different countries so um, currently into Tasmania there's been some irradiated produce going in there I think this is the second year or third year it's been going in um, and it's getting really good consumer acceptance down there which is great to see um, so hopefully that consumer acceptance will keep growing um, and we can keep expanding the markets domestically. Why do you think that state has accepted it so readily? Um, I'm not too sure to tell you the truth. It's, um, I suppose, given the remoteness of it um, yeah, the, and the challenges um, in getting fresh produce down there um, and you know, trying to get mangoes that look like this into there has always been a challenge for different growers um, and different people supplying that market. So. The irradiation process really is a easy, cheap, simple process. Um, you know, it doesn't harm the fruit in any way. It doesn't affect the eating quality. So there's a, a whole lot of positives in that that process. That I think people are just sort of realising that 
that that opportunity is out there now. That's Ben Martin, owner of Mato's Mangoes, based in Bowen in North Queensland, supplying irradiated mangoes to Tasmanian consumers. Talking there to Lucy Cooper. Not mangoes, but we will be giving away a box of cherries on Wednesday at the Giveathon. How much can Tassie raise in one day for the Giving Tree Appeal? And as I say, um, we'll be giving away a box of cherries to some lucky listener this coming Wednesday. Don't, uh, don't miss out. Well, that's the Country Hour for today. Detail, details of a lot of our stories online at ABC Rural and our ABC Rural Facebook page. Catch you after midday tomorrow.